Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing to concierge ordering support. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. Are you both working today? Are, is there reasons you're at the BBC other than talking to us? Yeah, yeah, we've done our Radio 4 show today, our BBC program today. Oh, you did an episode. We yeah. did. What's it about? We've both <laughs> already forgotten. It was two hours ago. Don't ask us hard questions like that. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Here at Team Shortwave, we love asking every single question under the sun. You might say it's our unwritten, not-so-secret mission. Because it's fun to think about things like, I don't know, how do rainbows work? And what is time? And is there free will? But last week, I think I finally met our curiosity match. About 70% of our communication is done texting each other to say, did you know this? Uh, have you heard this story? Or like, did you know about the, I don't know. Um, disco snails. Disco, yeah, parasitic disco snails. Meet the hosts of the BBC Radio 4 podcast, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, which is part science, part sleuthing. And after all these years of collaboration, these co-hosts have co-written a book. I'm Adam Rutherford, and I am the co-author of what in the UK is called Rutherford and Fry's Complete Guide to Absolutely Everything, because we're quite famous here. But because no one knows who we are in America, it's just called The Complete Guide to Absolutely Everything. <laughs> they dropped our names from our own book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, and I am Hannah Fry, and all the bits that he didn't write, I wrote. Um, I think that's the best way to sum us up. Adam is a geneticist, while Hannah is a mathematician. And their new book is the fruit of those many years of nerddom. And much like Hannah and Adam, it's perpetually asking why and how. Their questions range from chaotic thought experiments, like if all possible knowledge, right and wrong, were put in book form, how long would it take to read all those books? To the downright silly, like if ants with their thin legs and big heads were scaled up to the size of humans, could they hold up their bodies? Or did you know about the story about um, Christopher Columbus and the nipple-shaped earth or the Library of You're Babel? giving away all our good punchlines here. Right. And, <laughs> and so we, we, we text each other those, those things. And, and there was a point where we were just like, I think it would just be so much easier if we just wrote them down. Hannah and Adam do ask one extremely important and very serious question in their book, a question that Team Shortwave has been trying to answer for its entire existence. Does your dog actually love you? So I've got, I've got a whippet, two-year-old whippet called Jessie, who is the best dog in the world. And <laughs> Joint top. And Hannah has Molly, <laughs> who is also the best dog in the world, because all dogs are the best dogs in the world. But this is where their agreement breaks down. Here's Adam's take at the end of chapter nine. Because love, as defined in any way, is necessarily a human concept and can only be expressed by humans, the answer to the question, does my dog love me, has to be no. Unless Jesse learns to speak, he cannot describe to me how he feels. And his relationship with me is based upon safety and protection and provision of food and treats and lots and lots of scritching. So in attempting to train this beautiful, joyous idiot, 
You employ a strict reward system, and it's clear to me that the love we share is heavily based on small chicken-flavoured treats that now fill my pockets. And my response... What an absolute load of poppycock. <laughs> of course my dog Molly loves me. A child's relationship with their carer is also based on safety and protection, but it would be preposterous to propose that our love for our parents only engages once we develop the capacity for the language to express it. Love is a two-way connection. It is biological vanity, Adam, <laughs> to define the action of loving wow. to how it feels to experience it within a human body rather than how it manifests itself outwardly through the shared experience of loyalty, companionship and attachment. And by the latter metric, there is no doubt that dogs are entirely capable of love. More importantly, even... Oh, oh it goes on! <laughs> I've got another 47 pages of this. Today on our show, Adam Rutherford and Hannah Fry, this dynamic science podcasting duo, ponder what their disagreement tells us about the scientific process. And how science's long history of wrong answers has brought us even closer to the truth. I'm Emily Kwong, and you're listening to Shortwave, the daily science pondercast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast Business. Is it possible to get business internet you can really rely on? It is with Comcast Business. Keeping businesses of all kinds up and running with a network powered by 99.9% .9 reliability. Plus, advanced security to help outsmart threats to your data. And 24-7 customer support to help anytime. With Comcast Business, reliable business internet isn't just possible, it's happening. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary. Spoiler alert, Adam and Hannah agree to disagree about whether dogs love us humans. They spend pages on this disagreement in Chapter 9. And disagreement is the point. We think it's really important that um, people recognize that science is about disagreements and ab about challenging ideas and the discussions that we have. It it's, a, it's an ever-moving target. We talk about how science is... We're, we're, we tend towards truth but never find it. I mean that, but we also both really think that we're right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was and important to have the final word. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but do you, do you both think the general public realizes this, that it's standard practice for science to be constantly updating as new information is discovered? I don't know if they do, actually. And I think that that is something that has really shown itself over the last couple of years. I think that I'm still seeing a lot of stuff about mask wearing. You know, every time I sort of log into Twitter, look on Facebook, on Instagram, a lot of people who are still talking about the idea that actually there was a moment in time where uh, the, the, the sort of governmental advice was that masks weren't appropriate. And I think that um, if people not being able to understand that science, the best science is continually trying to disprove itself, trying to look for places where it's wrong and to change its opinion based on the evidence. Um, I think that's something that isn't really understood. And in fact, we end up teaching science as, as a sort of bank of facts. And I think anyone who goes through science, not just at high school, but into university and then maybe on to do a PhD and onto research. I think a lot of us, I certainly did, have a realization that the longer that you stay in science, the more you realize that we don't know and that you have this sort of 
epiphany moment. Mine was in the second year of my PhD when I was about 23. And just suddenly went, oh, I get it. I get it. We don't actually know anything at all. And, you know, we do know absolutely loads, but you're at Mm. the pinpoint of of knowledge Mm. and you have to be willing to challenge everything that has come before you. I do think, actually, on that point about that misunderstanding of what science is, I think that the really key point is to ask yourselves, what data would it take for me to change my opinion? And I think if you're a scientist, you are continually looking for that data. Yeah, I mean, we we go to great lengths in the next chapter to defend uh, a a piece of (laughs) information which we consider to be not only heretical, but fundamentally wrong and problematic, which is the age of the the age of the earth. Yeah, let's let's talk about that that chapter Rock of Ages. You don't come right out and say how old the earth is, which is very classic. Uh, Rutherford and Fry. A large part of the chapter is actually spent discussing the work of James Usher back in the 1600s, who made a lot of assumptions. So this is this gets back to the whole creationist argument, which yeah. is that the, the notion that the earth is 6,000 years old, it all stems from the work of Bishop Usher, James Usher, who was uh, a sort of rising star in the Irish church in the 16th century. His calculations are really rigorous and thoughtful, and he challenges all the suppositions made at the time and uses as much data and information as is available from the greatest authorities of the era in order to make this calculation that the, the creation of the Earth happened October 4004 BC. The problem with this is not his calculations, it's that the source text he was using is the Old Testament, which is not a textbook. But it was the it was the the authority for information at the time that Usher was writing. Can I can I tell you how we really do know the age of the earth? Because it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I would love to ultimately yes. They worked out with something called zirconium, which is um, the stuff that you get in sort of cheap, fake diamond rings. And the structure of zirconium is um, like a cage, and they looked at how many uranium atoms had been trapped inside it to work it out. 4.4 billion years is the answer. And then did effectively the same uh, with, a, with different radioactive elements from meteorites. And, and the, the answer we've settled on now is about 4.54 right. billion right. years. Oh, sorry. I was rounding down. Yeah, well, what's that? What's incorrectly four hundred million years between mates? <laughs> the dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, I really I love how just listening to you both, you don't seem to have a problem, and I mean this in the nicest way, being wrong and telling each <laughs> other that you're wrong. We don't really have a choice in that matter. I mean, I, I, being wrong is a virtue. We keep saying this. It's a virtue. <laughs> Is it, in fact, what good science – and I'm not talking about being wrong. I'm talking about not being afraid of being wrong. But I, but I really think that if you if you look around at the people who do well and who are respected and who you would trust to lead you, I think that they're the ones who have confidence and charisma, but also intellectual humility. They're also the ones who know their own flaws and aren't ashamed of them. And I think that that's just as true in science as it's in every other walk of life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are the two most humble people I've ever met. We came top in humble class. Yeah, and we're both super good looking as we well. We were really good at it. Yeah, it's true. No, but I think I think that, that you know there's a serious point, and, and we often say this in our talks, and, and we say it in the book. The three most important words that a scientist can say are, "I don't know," mm. right? Yeah. And and that really is a sort of fundamental cornerstone of the scientific process. 
that we don't know what the answer is, but we also have a bunch of tools that we've designed over the last several hundred years to answer that question. So it's not I don't know as in, you know, you're shrugging your shoulders saying, I haven't a clue. I don't know. It's good question. I don't know. We don't know. But I know how to find out. Hmm. Do you think through your friendship with each other, you know even better how to figure things out than you did when you were uh, doing scientific research? What's changed? Well, I think that, that, that well, there's a couple of things. One, one, one is that our interests... Our expertise is very complementary. But I also think that it's Adam and I, I think it would be fair to describe us both as uh, intellectually promiscuous. Um, <laughs> very widely around, around our subjects and both have this appreciation for, for art and poetry and history and, and all of those different elements, you know, and, and philosophy too. There's a lot of philosophy in this book. Intellectual promiscuity is a great term because <laughs> because in a way the book is... It's demonstrating that. It's showing you how to play in the chaos that in the the what in the world is that of the universe. It, would you say it is a guide for that? For the intellectually promiscuous? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. Just think of it as your own little black book for intellectual promiscuity. Wow. <laughs> this is not how I thought this was going to play out. I mean, there's a downside to this promiscuity as well, which is that a potential downside, which is that you don't know a subject in enough depth to actually contribute meaningfully to the broader discourse. But then the strange thing about science and the evolution of science over the last couple of hundred years is science becomes more and more uh, specialised and we go into these silos. On the one hand, you've got to know your subjects. You know, you've got to know your song before you start singing. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you need to know the other subjects as well. You need to know where the overlap between maths and biology, where evolution meets population genetics, where chemistry is the underlying language of, of all biological systems and where maths is the underlying language of, well, pretty much the way the universe works. I think maths wins on that one. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> Talking about some of these old theories, like how old the Earth is, it really shows something that you say a lot in this book, that science and the quest for knowledge is a human endeavor. It's done by humans, and we do it imperfectly because we're imperfect. And that is is not something we care to remember some of the time in science, even though it's the reality. Yeah, of course, because, you know, scientists are human. They have all of the biases that the rest of us have, you know. There's there's sort of arrogance and, and forgetfulness and, I mean, it's errors and junk, like we were saying earlier. Yeah. Um, just not necessarily being as open about it as they should be. We talk about one of the strengths of science as being a self-correcting process, mm -hmm. which is true. That's, that's one of its key strengths. But... And here's the big caveat, the quiet bit that needs to be said loudly. Mm. It's only self-correcting when we correct it. It doesn't happen naturally. So you publish a bunch of stuff and it turns out to not stand up to the scrutiny of peer review. Or that when other people repeat it, it turns out you get the opposite result. We have to do those experiments to pursue truth in the way that science is really good at. Adam and Hannah's new book, The Complete Guide to Absolutely Everything, Abridged, is out now. Today's episode was created by our merry band of intellectually humble and promiscuous miscreants, including producer Rebecca Ramirez, 
editor Giselle Grayson, and fact-checking extraordinaire Catherine Seifer. Natasha Branch was the lovely audio engineer, and I'm, of course, your host, Emily Kwonk. Thanks, and see you tomorrow for another episode of Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. ShipBob's warehouse management system can improve your efficiency, allow you to grow faster, and save you money all through one WMS platform. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.